Here we are back in the hot seat in the fresh new Sydney uh, podcast studio now. Huh? What do you think? Mate, it's awesome. White walls, black curtains and red carpet. Yesterday, we uh, I did a podcast with Toby Pierce, the uh, the founder of Sweat, sold for $400 million. You know, he's 30 years old, sold when he was 29. And uh, he was coming to the Sydney office to do the podcast. And this room was just a storeroom. And there was shit everywhere. One phone call to the builders. Mate, look at it now. It transferred. You wouldn't know. Behind those black curtains is just a heap of <laughs> garbage. Mate, it's pretty good effort, isn't it? It's almost like the mini block series. Mate, it is. Henderson Block. How to do a podcast studio within three hours. We even got Perry near Whittaker. Come give us a score. It's very good. Mate, today, what I wanted to run through um, off the back of many people, or many people, sorry, many investors, um, you know, obviously coming to us, wanting us to help to build the portfolios and obviously help them structure their finances to be able to Mm. maximize their servicing and not push themselves back into a corner. But what we're hearing a lot at the moment is, um, you know, they're going, they're getting pre-approvals and they're, they're, they're saying that, yep, we've got the available equity in the owner-occupier home that we own or another property. Um, and what they're doing is, and they're unaware of this, is that the bank's trying to do a cross-collateralization when they buy the new property, which is very, very, very common. Um, but as we know, cross-collateralization can restrict you as, a, as an investor um, quite significantly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mate, it's massive, and it doesn't. It it also applies to when you have existing properties. So let's say I own two properties. I've got my owner occupier and an investment property, and I'm looking to buy my third. Now, what happens particularly when buyers go direct to a bank and they don't use a broker? The bank, being commercially minded, wanting to take both assets as security, will do a loan against both properties. Let's say they're worth a million bucks each. That so two million combined. So they'll give you that say. 70% of the 2 million, which is, let's, uh, whatever that is, 1. 1.5. 1.4. 1.4. Close 1.4. enough. That's all right. There you go. Uh, 1.4 million. So what they'll do is they'll take the title of both properties and securitize that debt against both properties. Now, this is red, really bad red flags for us as investors because we now lose control if we want to pull out equity down the track. And if one property's gone up in value, one's gone down, you still need to order two valuations even though you've got equity gone up in one and one negative. Yeah, so so essentially what cross-collateralization means for people who don't know is when you go to buy property number two from property number one, or like Dan was saying, property number three from property number two, um, they're securitizing that property by using the other property. Mm. Um, And it, it makes it very difficult if you wanted to refinance and go to another bank because all of a sudden now you've got two loans. A lot of the time you actually can't sell a property either. Um, I was talking to a gentleman the other day who had quite a significant portfolio and um, he got himself into a bit of trouble where he had cross-securitization of multiple properties and he wanted to sell a property down to be able mm. to pay down some other debt because interest rates were increasing and he wanted to give himself more buffer, but he wasn't able to do that because they were they were crossed. Um, and I remember when I bought my first property with ANZ, um, they did the same thing. They, they We bought property number one, we went to buy property number two, unaware they cross securitized the the two properties to be able to do that and then when i finally went to a broker for property number three they then made me aware that hey this is this has happened um it's not ideal and it can can be hard to untangle the further you go down that line and and it's the banks want to try and keep you to them they want to try and 
you know, retain mm. you as a client and make it as difficult as possible to leave. Plus, they want as much security as possible. So if you stop paying the mortgage on property number one, they've now got two properties for security for it, that one property. Exactly right. And the way the banks view you as a borrower is they, yes, they look at your serviceability, but they also look at the risk ratio and that's based on the LVR. So obviously, the more equity a bank sees you have in a deal, the more security they have in their own eyes. So that's why they do like to take both assets is because mm. there's more equity you have in the deal. Um, and they're obviously holding two assets, which gives them more, I guess, security if the market Safe does change. For them. Yeah. Exactly right. But what we want to do as investors is we want to, we don't want to have any property securitized by any property. When we go to buy property two, three, four, five, or whatever property we buy, Instead of using property one as security, what we want to do is essentially just increase the mortgage on property number one. So let's hypothetically say we use that example. It was a million dollar property. You had a $600,000 mortgage on that property. You've essentially got $200,000 of available equity. Hmm. Now, what we would want to do is we want to release that $200,000 in cash. So essentially what we're going to do is release it into a offset account or just release it into an account. And what that does then is it takes your debt from property number one from six hundred. dollars to eight hundred thousand, so you've now got eight hundred thousand worth of debt, but you've got two hundred thousand dollars of cash, and then we use that cash as a deposit to go buy property number two, and then you can get finance for property number two from a completely different lender. So you can have multiple properties split across multiple lenders, which you can't do if you're cross-securitizing the properties. Um, and that way, property number one has no security, property number two has no security. You've essentially just used cash out of one to go mm. and buy the other and they're not affiliated it in any way because you've just increased the debt on, on one of those properties. And then you can do the same thing. You know, if you've got two properties and you're going to buy number three, you can release 100000 from one and 100000 from another, combine that two, those two cash amounts together and then go buy property number three. And when obviously the larger the portfolio, you can release small amounts of equity from multiple properties to give you the chunk of money that you need to be able to, to go buy another property. Exactly right. And I... um. Roughly when you order evaluation, so one of the negatives of when you have a property cross-collateralized is, like we mentioned before, if you ever want to pull equity out of either one of the properties, you have to order evaluation on both. The bank will assess both values and lend based on, on that value. So you will have to incur paying double valuation costs. Valuations for residential property range from 500 to to 1000 depending on the property where it's at, what have you. But... Um, I read, you know, like Jack's saying, particularly now when we're in a marketplace where property prices are coming down, you know, mm. we look at Sydney as an example, which has come down 10 to 15, 20% in some areas. And Brisbane hasn't had the same impact as of yet. You know, someone who owns property in Sydney and has cross-collateralized it with a property in Brisbane, you know, that's when it definitely impacts you as a borrower and it limits your flexibility and liquidity to invest. Exactly, which is something that we do not want to do um and you know we want to have as much flexible uh, flexibility sorry as, as as we possibly can um because you know if you've got three properties in the portfolio like i'm doing a refinance at the moment and i'm only refinancing three of the properties because i know that there's those they're the three that have have seen the most amount of growth and have the available equity in them mm. um and like you're saying if they were cross collateralized with three other properties that means they'd have to do six um, yeah. you know, revals and it's not ideal. And another thing is if you're tied to one lender, because that's what cross-securitization does, it ties you to that lender because they make it very hard to leave. One lender may give you a very, very different valuation to another lender. You know, if you mm. have your properties with ANZ, they might value the properties with their valuer at 750 each. If you then go to 
uh, CBA or Liberty or Latrobe, they might value the properties completely different, right? Because the valuation is subjective to the value of who's doing it. And then also the risk that that bank puts on you as a borrower, right? Because it's, you know, they, they, they rank everything. And it's also how much they want the deal, like how much they want yeah. to win you as a client. So, you know, it's not it's not all just about facts and figures. It's it, it also comes down to the demographic of the person. And if they want to win your business, they might give you a slightly higher valuation to be able to bring you over to them. Because again, again, it's their risk, right? Hmm. Um, so that that's thing uh, a topic that I think everyone should really look at when they're getting finances. When you speak to a broker, when you're speaking to a bank. You want to get an understanding of how this next property is actually going to be purchased. Is it just going to be an equity release, which you usually do a refinance on one property, release the equity, and then you'll have it sitting in an account as cash and then get pre-approved for the next purchase? Or is it, have they set it up like a, a cross-securitization where you don't get any equity released, essentially, you're just securitizing the other property with uh, with the current property? Yeah, and it, it's, um you know, we see it time and time again. It stings people and is one of the things that, hurts and is a roadblock to your, your success as an investor. You you, t- you mentioned one thing, Jack, which I, I think will be an interesting topic for us to cover is the valuation process. Mm. When we were in Newcastle, you were doing a valuation for your property in Bar Beach. I was actually at the property when the valuer was there. And what one of the things that we can do as, as investors is have a little bit of an influence over the valuer, particularly when they haven't done their research prior to attending the property. You know, there's times where the valuer will literally ask, you know, what do you think it's worth? And you, there's points where you can have some level of influence over the valuation process. Have you, like um, just that, that live example of me going to your, your Bar Beach mm-hmm. apartment, you know, speaking to the valuer, she was hadn't done her numbers prior to speaking with me and she kind of asked me, what do I think it's worth? And we're able to kind of get a, a decent valuation. What's your thoughts on the valuation process when people are, buying property and do you think they have any element of control through that at all for sure especially if your broker is a broker that has a high volume of transactions generally the brokers have a connection to the value i bet you that's blackie calling you trying to call me too <laughs> is it <laughs> i don't know um they yeah they have i have an influence over mm. over the, the valuation and i own properties in my portfolio that i know if i sold them i wouldn't achieve the sale price that the valuation is at so why would i ever sell the banks think they're worth more than what the market thinks they're worth right um so you know with that valuation when i you always have to give an indicative figure to the bank or to the broker as to what you think it's worth anyway so like what, what do you think the property's worth and then you give them the number and then the valuation comes in so one of those apartments i thought was worth 850 the valuation come in at 900 so it was fifty thousand dollars more than what I thought it was worth, uh, and I thought the other one was worth eight fifty, and the valuation come in at eight fifteen. Two things on that: one is they were both done by two separate valuers. I think if the up the top was done at by one valuer and down the bottom was done by one valuer, because they're identical apartments, they're just above and above and below one another. Um, I think one would have been eight nine hundred, and the other one would have been eight fifty because it was a different value, a different company on a different day. The numbers were slightly different. Um, and I never spoke to that valuer either. I never said, hey, X, Y, and Z property have sold around the area. Um, you know, I think mine's better than that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so you absolutely can have an impact because at the end of the day, the, the valuers are human beings and they're making a decision. And, you know, they, I think, you know, humans, you can potentially have some leverage on and, and make sure you get some strong numbers. Uh, and again, different lenders use different panels of valuers. Mm. And you can also get, you know, different... Um, 
different end result. So I know that I've, when I've gone to do refinances in the past, I've gone to the broker and the broker said, okay, let's get a valuation from ANZ. Let's get a valuation from uh, Rams was my one of my last refinances. And we just went with the valuation that was willing to give the, uh, the bank that was willing to give the highest valuations because that's where you're going to get the most amount of equity coming out of the portfolio. Um, so, and to me, that's the most important thing. You know, at the moment, interest rates are a big topic. We've spoken about it quite a lot on the podcast and people are so... Um, interested in getting the lowest possible rate a lot of the time, right? Because they think, oh, well, we can save, you know, $1,000 a month or $1,500 a month or whatever it is if we get a slightly lower interest rate. Mm. For me, that's the thing that matters the least. All I worry about is who's willing to give me the highest valuations, which is allowing me to get the most amount of equity out of my property and not just valuations. Who's going to give me the most amount of serviceability because buying another property at $500,000, $700,000, million, $1.5 million, is going to make you a lot more money than going with the bank or the lender who giving you a lower interest rate, which is going to save you five grand a year, right? 10% growth on a million dollar asset, $100,000 a year. 1% saving on an interest rate on a million dollar asset is $10,000 a year, right? So you can see what's going to make you the most amount of money. Um, and what's going to make you the most amount of money is the bank who's going to give you the most amount of servicing and the bank who's going to give you the most generous valuation. So you've got the equity to be able to use that servicing. Hmm. Yeah, most definitely. What um, what's your thoughts? And I had a, a client this week call me up um, on two occasions. One of them is about we're buying a property, and we're going to it's it's currently non renovated. It's uh, worth about eight hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. There's probably about thirty to fifty grand's worth of renovations to be done. As is, it would rent for say five hundred to five fifty a week. We spend another fifty thousand. It can rent for say six to six fifty. When in the process do you think people should be spending money on their property for either rental increases or for the equity increase to get a revaluation done? Um, so I would only spend money on renovating a property when you don't have the available equity or you don't have the available servicing. So you know, if you've got a strong portfolio and you've got, say, let's just say you've got $200,000 worth of, worth of equity available, and you can service a million bucks, I would not go and spend that 200000 on renovating first and then going to buy a property. I would spend the money on buying a property first. Because mm. in my eyes, you want to make sure you're maximizing your servicing at all points. Because if you've got serviceability that's not being used, it's dead money, right? It's pointless. Same as equity. If you've got equity in properties that you're sitting there doing nothing and you're in the acquisition phase of a portfolio, it's dead money. So having cash sitting in the bank not being used, it's useless. So... Um, I always want to maximize my servicing and I want all the banks to say, I'm not lending you any more money. Go and earn some more or go and decrease your debt. And then once I hear that message, then I'll go back and renovate properties. Um, and you know, then you've got time, you can go back and, and you can still release some equity, right? Like the banks mm. say you might, you might not have any servicing, but that's to buy another property, but you might still be able to release 50 grand worth of equity from a property to go renovate another property, for example. Um, and, you know, another thing you have to think about if you're going to renovate a property to increase your rental yield is, let's hypothetically say you've got a tenant in there at the moment. I think you were saying it's probably 500 bucks a week. And if they renovate, it'll be 650 or, you know, 600. But the property might have to be vacant for, you know, four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, or depending how big the renovation is. So you're then going to have, you know, two or four or six or eight grand worth of vacancy period there which obviously eats into your return and if you're getting an extra hundred dollars a week 
in rent, it's going to take you 18 months to be able to earn back the money you've cost by getting your property mm. vacant. Um, so sometimes the numbers aren't always that great. It's the same with when you've got a tenant in a property and you know I'm, I'm doing a, a tenancy at the moment with someone who's been on my pro- one of my properties for two years and they've been a good tenant and they said, oh, we want to renew the lease. And I said, sweet, your rent's going from 450 to 500 bucks a week. And they said, oh, can we do it at 480? And you know, the ego gets in the way and they're like, no, the rents have increased significantly. Oh, it's 500 bucks. And then I'm like, yeah, but if they say no, you have one week of vacancy, you've just missed $500 a week, then you've got to pay another letting fee. What happens if it's two bucks a week, uh, two weeks, and then you've cost yourself $1,000? You know, $1,000 is one year of $20 a week, right? So it's, yeah. it's for the, all the pain in the ass. You know, I, I think it's much more worthwhile to keep a really good tenant in a property, even if they are maybe slightly paying under market, um, but you have no vacancy periods, you have no fuck around. It's just yeah. consistent rent week in, week out, um, and you don't have to go through the rigmarole. You know, a, fun, a funny story on, on tenants while we're on the topic. When I um, went to visit, I've got, so I've had two good tenants. The last tenants I had, that when they moved in, they actually with the removalist truck broke the the roof of the house anyways had a dog young family trashed the place weren't the best quality tenants had a new lot in they're an older couple they maintain the property look after it quite well so as a thank you gift actually drove up to the property and gave them two gold class tickets it's just like you know thanks for being great tenants and it's funny how just small gestures like that touching on what you're saying how the opportunity cost of doing things like that pays dividends so you know, now I'm in a position where they've been great tenants, they mow the lawns, anything that needs fixing, which I should technically be fixing, they go on and fix it themselves. Um, and when I, when it does come to rent raising time, like I'm about to re- increase my rents myself, you know, I'm similar to yourself, going to try and meet them halfway to a reasonable figure, then trying to maximize my rental income. But um, I guess rents, rents aside, when when we buy a property, let's say we've got a property and we've let's say we've got a property for about seven hundred grand. There was a case study I had where the guy's got four hundred grand cash, mm-hmm. owns a property now, he, he bought it for seven hundred grand. He's thinking, do I spend money on my property to renovate to increase its value, or do I start my business to increase my cash flow and then come back to the property later? What's um what's your take on, on something like that? I think this is not just with the renovations. It's a it's a thing that a lot of people don't do. They're like, oh, I want to continue to grow my portfolio, so I'm going to stay in my job, so I can you know continue to earn an income. And I went through this myself before I moved out of mining and moved into this full time. Um, property will will make you wealthy, right? There's no doubt about it. If you hold really good quality property over the long term, you're going to do very well. And there's not other no many other asset classes that will do as well. But your own business will make you a lot more money than property ever will. Maybe not from a uh, a, like a growth uh, from appreciation standpoint, but from a, a lifestyle and cash flow standpoint, your 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 business will always make you much more money. So, you know, I I'm a big believer in if you've 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 got a decision to continue to invest in property or continue to, or, or or start a business. If oh fuck, if the business is you know actually going to make money, mm. um, and you're not going to go and you know, do something that's more of a hobby, um, then I would always say start the business because, you know, sure, in the short term, you probably will likely take a hit, but over the long term, the business is going to increase your income. It's going to increase your capacity to buy more property and that in turn is going to increase your wealth 
by a much more significant standpoint than staying in a job so you can continue to you know invest in property once every couple of years because that's the big thing that holds people back and it was the thing that was holding me back when i was like oh well i wanted to maximize my portfolio i don't want to leave a really good paying job and then go start a business and not be able to borrow for two years and it's looking at the short term right because you can zoom in a microphone when you look at it two years over a 80 year life is a very small amount of time um, so you, I think it's definitely worthwhile taking short-term pain for, for long-term gain. You know, in that two years, sure, you may not buy, but your income is probably going to double or triple or quadruple or 10x. And the amount of property you'll be able to buy when you're in a position to will be two things. One will be a significantly higher quality asset and two, it'll be a much larger, you know, asset base as well. Mm. Yeah. So it's it, in short, like... If, if you had $100,000, for example, $50,000 and you had the choice to renovate your property to manufacture some growth or you had the capacity to go and use that as working capital inside a business, um, I would use it as working capital inside a business. Or let's use this 50 grand to go and renovate the property. Let's add 150 grand's worth of value to the property. Then we'll go refinance the property, pull that 50 grand back out so you're getting the best of both worlds and then mm. use that cash to to use as working capital or, or a buffer when you're starting a business. Um, when I started in real estate, I bought a property just before I transitioned. Yep. Um, and then, so I bought that property. Then a year later, refinanced all the portfolio, refreshed my interest only periods for five years. So I knew I had five years worth of leeway and my cash flow wasn't really going to change. And I released a bit of cash as well, which was going to give me, you know, some buffer room because I could use that as just cash to service the portfolio and service my lifestyle. And then I knew, you know, for six or 12 months, I didn't have to earn $1. So I had no financial pressure on myself. Um, and I was going to be okay. And that, you know, that's that's the options property gave me. Because if I didn't have the ability to go back to the bank and re- refund it to pull more money, I would have to save that money to put myself in that position. Hmm. And, the you know, essentially the properties did the forced savings for me. Yeah, massive. So that's, that's my take on it. Um, mate, we've got a few questions coming through here on the, uh, on the Facebook. Um, one of the questions is around self-managed super funds. So essentially the question is, is it best to buy a property with my self-managed super fund? My industry fund balance seems to drop with every contribution with a uh, an angry face. <laughs> so essentially what they're saying is, is it better to buy a property in self-managed super or is it better to have my money sitting in an industry fund? Um, which is a really, really good question. And um, I've, we've been talking about it quite a bit recently. Self-managed super fund, I think, is um, is an incredible, incredible wealth. Fuck me. It is an incredible wealth creation tool for the simple reason that you can have leverage inside of it mm. and your contributions, if you're an employee, plus the rental income of the things that service it. So it has zero impact on your life whatsoever. The banks are willing to lend into self-managed super funds. So if you've got 300,000, you could probably go buy a million dollar asset and the asset will service itself. So you essentially have zero issues with it. You're getting growth on a million dollar asset. The asset's serving itself with the rent and your contributions. And in you know, 40 years time, if you bought it at 20 or in 30 years time, if you bought it at 30, when you retire at 60, 65, you're going to have a much larger asset base than if you were to just use the contributions to, to be able to get growth. Now, um, where I see people go wrong with self-managed super is that they just buy the wrong asset. So they That's buy the like biggest a mistake highly, so much. High cash flow asset. Do not buy high cash flow. Commercial asset or something like that. I know a lot of people who own businesses in their well, super that, funds. Well, that works well because then you're buying a renting 
So buying a commercial property and if you're a doctor and you have your own business, well, that works well because you can make additional contributions by leasing that to yourself. Yeah, so you can so increase from, the rent essentially, yeah, essentially and pay a higher rent than what the market would yeah. probably pay. Which works, which works. But um, the biggest mistake I see with self-managed super funds, like Jack mentioned, is buying high cash flowing properties because your rental, your, your interest rates are around 5% plus anyway. So there's no real additional surplus cash flow. If it is, it's it's minuscule and that doesn't compound over time. Yeah, that's and right. And with self-managed super fund, any equity increase you have, you can't pull that equity out to buy another property. So mm. what you've got is what you've got essentially. So buying more cash flowing properties doesn't help you to buy more. Like you said, they can't think off the rental income and your contribution. So you want to make sure you're buying the best quality assets or really high growth assets. So when you're taking advantage of that leverage, it's compounding over the long mm. term. Because when you pay that debt down to zero, the only thing you can do is buy another property, but you can't refinance to buy the other, the, buy that another property. You have to save up that cash to mm. be able to buy again. So, which is unlikely, you know, to be able to to do that unless you buy in yourself when a super fund super young. But again, you have to have the balance inside of your super fund to be able to buy young. So yeah, exactly. Unless you're putting non-concessional contributions into super. Um, in a significant way, you probably aren't going to be able to buy a property in your super fund until like 35. You know, if yeah. you start working in your early 20s, it'll give you 10 to 12 years. You probably have a couple of hundred grand in your super fund by then. Then you can buy. Back when I was learning, I think Latrobe at the time needed 150 grand minimum in your account plus 10% liquidity. So there are like, you can't just go in with 90 grand and start buying under yeah. yourself anyways. And they usually want a higher... Like I want a lower LVR as well. So you yeah, about put 70, in more cash. 75, some 80. Yeah. Um, another question on self-managed super fund. How do you buy a property inside of your self-managed super fund? Currently have 480K and a 27,000 contribution per annum. So 27,000 contribution per annum is actually almost the top contribution you can have on concessional. So if you're doing your, um, your um, super contributions out of your... Uh, pay on a, on, a, on a yearly basis you can only regardless of what you earn you can only contribute a certain amount and they won't let you contribute anymore um, and I think that amount is around about 29,000 it changes you know every year um, so this person's got 480 grand in their super fund and they're uh, currently contributing almost the maximum they can um, so I mean personally what I would do is um, go and find out how much leverage that you can get. Like what's the bank actually willing to lend you based on your the rental income or proposed rental income and uh, and the 27,000 and then just maximize that. So if they'll lend you 600,000, then I'd use the other 300 as the deposit to go buy a $900,000 property and then the rest of the money is the stamp duty and all the other costs associated mm. with it. And another way to increase your servicing as well if you're in a couple uh, is you, you can both be a part of the self-managed super fund. So then your both of your contributions yeah, will, will be considered to um, to be able to borrow, which means you can get you can borrow more money inside of the super fund. Another and you little can, you can combine your your super, super balances. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, what were we gonna say? Another um, this is I don't advocate for it, but we used to see this back in the day was particularly builders that would buy in the SMSF and an established property run down and then use their cash from their business to <laughs> renovate the property to increase the value. It's how they would make additional contributions yeah. without contributing. Mm. That is, but that's not financial That is advice. not allowed, and um, we would <laughs> definitely not like to see that. That is a... That is a <laughs> yeah. 
We don't like that at all. Everything needs to be done by the book. But yeah, it's interesting. Doesn't it, Daniel? I, no, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I was taking the piss. Relax. Um, Jokes, nah. Uh, North Queensland tips. Mackay. My tip on North Queensland. Mackay. Yeah, yeah. My tip on North Queensland is stay the fuck away from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't want to. Uh, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. And look, this is for the simple reason that a lot of the places in North Queensland. There isn't a great economy up there. There isn't great, you know, let me rephrase that. There isn't a huge amount of jobs up there. Um, there aren't high incomes. There yeah. isn't an scarcity to the land. There's an abundance of land. Um, and one of the biggest things, which is what we always advocate for, is there isn't a proven track record of performance. You know, I don't want to go and invest in an area that hasn't done anything for 20 years. That's scary to me. I would be, I would be consistently nervous I would have anxiety all the time because you're like, oh, is, is it actually going to happen or is it not going to happen? Like it hasn't happened before. So I'm betting it's going to happen again where I'd much rather, you know, do the opposite to that and go, well, this area's performed for the last 30 years. So unless our, uh, our population goes, fuck, I don't like living by the beach anymore and I don't like eating at cafes and they want to go live in the middle of Uluru, I can't foresee that changing, right? Like Sydney's population is going to be significantly higher by 2040, and when you have more population and the same amount of land and same amount of houses, what happens? The prices increase. So uh, that's my take on North Queensland. Run the other way. Um, last question before we wrap and stitch this podcast. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on Melbourne market 10 to 15 kilometers from the CBD. Or we have the choice of that question or... Not much more serviceability, but 300K in equity. Best way to get into that owner-occupier, that next owner-occupier, bridging question mark. I'm assuming he means bridging mm-hmm. finance. Um, Daniel, choose a question. Fuck, these questions are... I would go 15K from Melbourne. All right, here we go. Sorry, you don't get your question answered, Mr. Serviceability Man. Um, <laughs> would love to hear your thoughts on the Melbourne market, 10 to 15Ks from the CBD. Now... The Melbourne market, big market, lots of different, you know, sub-markets Mate, like inside. like 38 sub-markets, something crazy like that. So, you know, 10 to 15 Ks in Melbourne is a, in, in um, this is a very interesting actually, in distance is the same. 10 to 15 Ks is the same everywhere, right? It doesn't change whether you're in Melbourne, New South Wales, Queensland, in terms of like it's, it's 10 to 15,000 meters. Yeah. But in terms of relative distance, it's very far. 15Ks in Brisbane CBD is a lot further than 15Ks in Melbourne CBD. And the reason for that is because there's a lot different density. Melbourne's much more dense, the population, than Brisbane. Mm. So 15Ks from Melbourne CBD could take you 30 minutes to drive there. 15 minutes, uh, 15Ks from Brisbane CBD could take you 15 minutes, 10 minutes to drive there. Um, and it's the same in Sydney. 15Ks from Sydney is not a far. It's not far. You know, I live in Fairlight, which is about 10Ks from Sydney CBD. And it's in Manly, which is one of the most... You know, prestigious suburbs. Um, but again, 15Ks in Brisbane, much further. So 15Ks in Melbourne, within 10 to 15, I think you're in some good markets, right? You're in, you're in some good suburbs and I would be buying houses there. I would not be buying apartments personally. Um, and, you know, again, going back to what we just said, you want to look at the proven track record of performance in these areas. You know, you want to get the best quality property and the best quality suburb that you can afford hmm. with the proven track record of performance. And a majority of these suburbs, 10 to 15 cash from Melbourne CBD, would have proven track records of performance because there isn't a lot of available land within 10 k's of Melbourne CBD. 
you might get um, a few suburbs going through what we call gentrification, mm-hmm. which, for example, let's say in Sydney, we're in Sydney, Mount Druitt has not the best name. Let's say Mount Druitt turns into a suburb like Paddington, which we're in now, that would be going through a process called gentrification where it goes from a less desirable to a more desirable location. Mm-hmm. Um so if I was in Melbourne and I was 10 to 15 K from the CBD and I wanted to maximize my return, I would be focusing on an area going through gentrification or like Jack said, has a proven track record yeah. of performance. You know, like in, in Melbourne, a suburb like Brighton would be within 10 to 15 Ks. And Brighton's one of the most prestigious Brighton's suburbs very close in, 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 uh, in Melbourne, right? So you're talking some of the best suburbs, um, Brunswick is obviously super close. On the other side, Altona. Um, all of these places are within sort of 15Ks of... of let me have a look but, at um, Let me see if Altona Melbourne's is. good. Like, you know what does very well in Melbourne? Melbourne's got a lot of boutique, townhouse, terrace vibes. You could buy, you know... Altona is actually 18Ks from Melbourne CBD. Sorry, so we just missed that. What's the one that your parents lost money in? Uh, that is a great question. What's what it called? Uh, I know what I... it's called. Let me find it. Uh, I can't think of it. Ah, uh, it's off the top of my head. Truganina. 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 Do not bite in Truganina. Don't bite in Truganina, folks. Let's see how it looks. Let's see? Let, let, this is a good one. Truganina. Truganina was a new house and land estate about fucking 20 years ago when my parents bought there. And it is... 25 k's from brisbane cbd out near werribee um 25 k's which is 50 minutes 25 k's in in uh brisbane is a long way if you'll mind more than 25 k's in brisbane cbd that's not good don't do that do not do that <laughs> so mate that's uh that's a wrap for the week we uh Short and sweet. Today. Short and sweet. It's still about 40 minutes. We brought a lot of value, if I do say so myself. Um, and look, I've got one one tip before we wrap up, and that tip is be good to your mother and make sure you put your socks on before your shoes. <laughs> that's a wrap. And that's a wrap. <laughs>